Psalm chapter 37, 1 through 11. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Amen. If you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, and I uh, have been unfamiliar with the Psalms for a good part of my Christian walk, uh, the Psalms, more than anything, give us voice to speak to the Lord when we don't have words. So we see in the Psalms over and over and over again is all of these all of these situations that the writers are in that, uh, that are very difficult, and yet God meets them. And so you'll see transparency and honesty that you won't see anywhere else in the Bible. And, 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 and the Psalms are so beautiful because they give us this voice. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 37, as we've just read. Um, and Psalm 37 is interesting because I think Psalm 37 has to deal uh, with David as he looks back over the course of his life. And he looks back maybe at some of the pivotal intersections uh, in his life where things could have gone another direction. They could have gone a different way. Uh, I mean, I think we can all look back over our lives and look at pivotal moments, right? We can look back, if I wouldn't have went to that retreat or that camp, we have some camp counselors here from Camp Westminster, welcome. I wouldn't have went to that, you know, I don't know that I, that I would have uh, been here in life. Or if I would have married that person instead of that person. Or if I would have taken that job or this job. And we can all look back and see uh, where we may have been in different places. Uh, and, and we're in the midst of those crossroads. Uh, many times we, we're, we tend to believe that we have more control than we actually do. Uh, and this is the, the great temptation that we fall into. That, that we can control uh, more of our life than we actually can. Um, and, and we want to know God's will in those situations. We want to know exactly what God wants of us and how to please Him. Um, but the thing that, that we fail to realize a lot of times is that more than any activity or, or choice that we could ever make, God wants us. He wants relationship with us. And that's why we've kind of coined the big idea of this sermon in Psalm 37. Uh, this, instead of giving us a plan to discover His will, God gives us Himself. So here's what I want you to consider. What would it look like for you to stop asking for a roadmap and to start asking for Jesus? To stop looking for a printout of Google directions on what it looks like for you to walk in obedience and to start looking for the person of Jesus magnifying His presence in your life and you walking in step with Him. What if we looked at the Holy Spirit's direction in our life more as a compass instead of a map? Where He's always wooing us back to Himself and always leading us into that. But for some reason, the... That answer that I just gave you is insufficient a lot of times. We would much rather have a to-do list. This is, this is, I mean, if we look at what it means to follow Jesus, we would prefer the law over the Gospel. 
We prefer a to-do list that we can never live up to instead of the free grace that Jesus gives us to walk into and to enjoy Him all of our life. Dallas Willard says it like this, In many cases, our need to wonder about or be told what God wants in a certain situation is nothing short of a clear indication of how little we are engaged in His work. Now that kind of cuts us, doesn't it? That kind of hurts a little bit. But when we get into these places where we're, we're, we're just saying, God, just show me the next step, uh, we, we've lost the dialogue that a relationship with God warrants. It's this, this back and forth. In the Psalms, we see the psalmist speaking to God, sometimes speaking things that are absurd because they're in his heart, and God responding to him. We even see it in Psalm 37 today. So if you're someone who is always second-guessing, am I walking in God's will or not? Uh, I have tremendously good news for you uh, this morning. That when you follow Jesus, you are given, as Patrick said earlier, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the way that the Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit is they say that the Holy, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. It is a guarantee that God is with you and that He will come back for you. And so He guides and leads us to all righteousness in our life. At New City Church, we have this phrase uh, that we often use, and it's this. When you know who your dad is, you know how to live. When you know who your dad is, you know how to live. The Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us that God is our Father. That Jesus has come for us and that He is living in us and that He reigns all over the world and He's pleased to invite us into His rule and reign, into His kingdom. So the role of the Christian is this, is that we look for God's movement all around us and we readjust our lives in faith to follow His plan. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But we can't follow Him without realizing that the person and work of Jesus are ours. So here's, here's how I see Psalm 37 laying out. Psalm 37 is basically David looking back on his life. And, and David is almost giddy. He's so excited about how God has worked and moved through the trials of his life. So Psalm 37 is a, is a piece of wisdom literature that actually goes through most of the Hebrew alphabet. And he lists basically two ways that God is faithful for every letter of the alphabet. I mean, he's like, he's like, he's like a middle school boy that has his first girlfriend. You know what I mean? She loves me, she loves me. Like Alpha Alpha. I mean, he's just so excited about God's rule and reign in his life and how he's seen his faithfulness throughout all the time. He's so giddy about that. But he does delve into the temptations that we face Whenever we try to take things into our own hands. And then, so, so, so the, the kind of the outline of the sermon is this. The first part, we're going to look at the temptations we face when God's will is not clear to us. And secondly, we're going to look at how the Spirit empowers us even when God's will isn't clear. So let's dig in together. Uh, uh, Psalm 37, 1 and 2. I'm going to read this for us. And also verse 10. Uh, there's a temptation toward comparison and envy when God's will isn't clear in our life. Listen to it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. So, so the, the focus early on in Psalm 37 is that the evildoer seems to be prospering in the place of the righteous. The person that belongs to God. 
And there tends to be a little bit of discouragement when that, when that happens in David's heart. So he's looking back at his life. This psalm was probably written in the last two or three years of his life. He's looking back and all the times he was tempted to believe that. When he was hiding from Saul in a cave, when, when his son was seeking to kill him. All of those moments you're wondering, God, what are you doing? How could you allow this to happen? And so we, 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 we go into this mode where we, are, where, where we have to answer the hard questions. You know, God, how do you allow, how are you a good, gracious, perfect, and loving God? And how do you allow evil things to happen? How do you allow us to experience pain? Uh, C.S. Lewis, a uh, renowned author, author writes uh, on this a lot. And I want to give you one quote out of his book called The Problem of Pain. And here's what he says. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in the pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But listen to this. He shouts in our pain. He shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. God allows these things to happen because He's God. We can't contend with that. Who who can understand the mind of the Lord? As As the Scriptures say, who has been His counselor? He's God. We, we see very little of the plan. But what we do understand is that everything that He is allowing in our life, everything that He's even causing in our life is working for our good. But we, we typically think that the mystery of God's will, when those things happen that we can't control, we, we are prone to go to anxiety or fretting. And we're prone to go to comparison. I preached a sermon on anxiety recently. Uh, so today I want to focus a little bit more on comparison. Uh, we see this comparison happening with the righteous that David talks about and then the evildoer. He's like, God, this guy is prospering and he is doing evil. Nothing but evil. Why is that so? And, and the, the psalmist, David writes about you know, how we need to have a long view of life because to see the faithfulness of God, you have to endure. You have to persevere. It doesn't happen instantaneously. You experience deep, dark things and that's when God gets His megaphone out and He shouts to you His faithfulness and His goodness in the dark nights of your soul. And when we compare ourselves to other people uh, or, or compare ourselves to other circumstances, we're forgetting that, I think it's the Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That each and every one of you have unique DNA. And you each reflect the beauty and magnificence of our God and Savior. You each reflect it. And so what you are dealing with, what you are going through, God is in control over. When the object of our gaze is on anything other than Jesus, we will always compare. We have no other option because we've got to find a way to assuage our conscience. We've got to find a way to justify the pain that we're experiencing so we compare ourselves. And comparison kind of goes uh, one of two ways. You know, we, we either uh, compare ourselves and we look down at other people and we say, at least I'm not like them. So there's this self-righteous pride. Or we look up to others and long to experience what they have. And then we have self-righteous jealousy in those moments. In the garden was not the temptation of Eve, a temptation to compare what God had revealed to her through His words and what the enemy tempted her to believe that was contrary to God's Word. 
There was a comparison there that she weighed out and she, uh, Adam and Eve, both of them, they, they took the bait. And you and I, friends, have been taking the bait ever since then. We've been taking the bait of comparison thinking that it will give our souls something that will soothe our consciences. But it's impossible to find hope by looking to anything other than Jesus. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, Megan and I were talking about comparison this week. When you're comparing yourself with someone, you don't have an opportunity to have fellowship with them. And this, is, this runs rampant in the Christian, in the church as well. Not just outside the church. We don't have an opportunity to have fellowship because we're either looking up or we're looking down. We can never see face-to-face and eye-to-eye because friendship is an afterthought because we're too busy trying to prove ourselves. We can't experience fellowship. The Scriptures speak to this temptation in our way out. I'm confident. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. And I just want to quickly read a few verses here for us. This way out of temptation to see Jesus in the midst of our temptation to compare. Verse 22 in chapter 10 says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, just before this verse, the Scriptures speak of Jesus as the great High Priest. And they they speak of this idea that we have access to God. That Jesus is our great High Priest and we can't just access Him once a year on the Day of Atonement. No, we can access our great High Priest at any moment because He's always interceding, seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating for us. So He says, we can draw near. Let us draw near in a true heart And this is key, with full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. When we are comparing ourselves, we are incredibly insecure. You know what the problem is? No one knows it but us. So what's happening on the inside of us? We are deteriorating from the inside out when we look to others. And we, we, try, to, we try to figure out who we are in light of them. We, we can never see them as uniquely and wonderfully and fearfully made because we're too busy trying to prove that we're not like them or trying to be them. We can't experience fellowship. We can't experience what it's like to live in the body of Christ and to be unique. He goes on to say, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the truth. When one of my brothers or sisters in Christ wins, I win. When one of my brothers or sisters in Christ loses and they mourn, I mourn. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. And so what's the antidote for us? How do we stop comparing? What, he, says, he says something really interesting. There's, so, so we would say that when we compare, we are insecure, which means that we lack a full assurance of faith. Somehow God is not enough for us. So we're, we're lacking. So, so how, do we, how do we stay certain of who Jesus is and what He's done? He says we got to stay together as the church. Let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. And the only way that we can do that is if we're together. 
So what would it look like for us as a church to make it our aim to encourage one another as often as we possibly could? Do you think that comparison would die down a bit if that happened? If we made it our aim to look at each and every person that we're able to encounter and encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Because in the silence and isolation of your walk with Jesus when you're alone, comparison festers in, it creeps in. It was in those moments when David was alone that he was most tempted to compare and to doubt. But God has given us this beautiful gift. His church. His people. What does it look like for us to encourage one another in that. Uh, Megan, uh, this was a couple of years ago, maybe last year, one of our neighbors in our neighborhood was, um, we just had a new baby and life was super crazy. I had four kids, like six and under. It was just wild. And one of our neighbors just had had a new baby. And I remember, uh, I remember us all sitting in the, uh, the, the kitchen around the island and this particular lady was just like, man, I just don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you make life happen. You can kind of see when people are kind of pandering after comparison in those moments. You know what I'm talking about? When when they're kind of there, when you see them comparing themselves. And then there's that moment where you can can either encourage them and stuff that stuff down, or you could say, yeah, I don't know, we just kind of do it. There's that crossroads. I think as the church, I would go as far to say is that we have a responsibility toward one another to help belittle comparison as much as possible. And we do that through encouraging one another. And so Megan said something like, you know, like honestly, we're overwhelmed most of the time too. Like we can't figure this thing out. Like you just see the good and put together parts of our lives. But there's this whole underside that we can't control. And it leaves us on our knees. And what does that do? That humility, when we have humility in those moments, it opens the door for fellowship. So what would that look like for us to to pursue that? And I think there's no greater tool, for better or for worse, to um, magnify comparison as as social media. Because what social media does is it allows me to be connected to someone who I don't actually know and to compare myself to them. And so for instance, like, you know, yeah, I follow, you know, Tim Keller, uh, who's this great preacher in Manhattan, and I follow LeBron James, you know, on Twitter, and, you know, I'm keeping up with them. And my temptation, you know... uh, is to, is to think, man, you know, I'm kind of like Tim Keller, right? I mean, look, I mean, look at this chart. I mean, people tell me I'm a good preacher. I'm, 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 I'm like Tim Keller. And, and then I'm tempted to think, like, you know, I can kind of ball like LeBron. I mean, sure, he won one game, but, you know, I mean, I, I can kind of keep up with those guys. But here's the, here's the reality. I don't know either one of those guys. I think, I think social media, and this is just kind of a little bit off the record, but I think social media best, is best served to, to God's people uh, to, to, to help magnify relationships that already exist. Um, because otherwise, uh, you're connected through a, sc- a screen and a wire, and uh, fellowship can't exist through a screen and a wire. Um, so let's keep moving on. Uh, we're, we're, we're tempted uh, toward anger and wrath when God's will is not clear to us. So Psalm 37 8 says this refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. So I want to I couple that with Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 to 27, where the Apostle Paul talks about anger. He says this, Be angry and do not sin. So that tells us there is a type of righteous anger that we see maybe Jesus exhibit as He turns over the money changer's table when He walks into Jerusalem and they're, making, uh, uh, they're, they're basically making a joke of the temple. 
so, so there's a way to be angry and not sin. Uh, most of us haven't figured it out though. You know what I mean? Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What does that verse tell us about anger? That verse tells us, one, that it's possible to be angry and not sin. It's really hard though. Uh, but for most of us, it's unlikely. Uh, it also tells us that anger uh, tends to evil. Anger is a gateway emotion that gives a foothold to the devil. When we are experiencing anger, the devil has us really right where he wants us. Um, and so, uh, you know, whenever I was a, a very young boy, about eight years old, uh, I, I was playing on uh, this basketball team called the Colonels. And uh, it was like my second or third year playing ball. And I thought I was pretty good. Um, I got to play some. And uh, that year, we had an eight-game season in a tournament. Guys, I got three technical fouls in eight games. That is a lot of technicals. Technical foul is like, you know, explicit behavior. Or like Typically, the way it would happen is I would get fouled and they wouldn't call it. And I would just go straight over to the ref and be like, you know, just kind of run my mouth toward him. Uh, I remember ruining a birthday party because I lost at bowling. I, I really, I vividly remember that. And my mom was so embarrassed. Bless her heart. The bottom line is, is that I was consistently unsatisfied with who I was and who others were to me. Anger is birthed most times when our expectations go unmet. When what we desire to happen and our reality do not match up, it manifests itself in anger a lot of times, or we implode uh, and we kind of become depressed. It kind of goes one of two ways when that happens. But, but what I learned about myself uh, was that anger is a secondary emotion uh, for me. It was, it was those unmet expectations. And I was a really insecure uh, young man. So if you, if you struggle uh, with anger, Ephesians 4 gives us some helpful insight. He says, don't let uh, the sun go down on your anger. So uh, for most of us, the sun has gone down many times on our anger. Um, and, and what Paul encourages us toward today is don't let it happen again. So, so if, if, if you're dealing with anger uh, this morning, and it's, it's not this momentary just kind of flare up, but it's this consistent presence in your life and walk that is always kind of shaping you and shaping how others respond to you, uh, we've got to ask Jesus to come in and be present in the midst of that. Because it will wreck your life. It will wreck your walk with Him. And it will, it will make you a toxic person without you even realizing it. Jesus has come to deal with our anger because He meets our expectations in giving us far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. So we, we come to Him. And, and the mysteries of God are painful and they hurt and we don't understand them, but the anger that, that wells up within us deteriorates our fellowship with others. This psalm teaches that there is another way to live though. That that fretting uh, or anxiety and um, in comparison and anger do not have to define you. They do, though they once defined you, and for me, like my anger, uh, it just kind of went away when I was in middle school. I can't explain it, but all of a sudden I wasn't mad anymore. That's what God does. Is he, he comes and He meets us and He changes us. And His, His grace is transformative in our souls. So how does the Spirit empower us even though God's will isn't clear? Even though those moments when David looked back over his life, 
things weren't clear, and he, and he doubted himself a lot. How does that change things for us? Acts 1.8 says this. These are the, guys, these are the final words that Jesus Christ gives to His people before He ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. You think they'd be important, right? Here's what He says. But you, talking to His people, will receive power. That word power is the same word we get dynamite from. Like explosiveness that we cannot create in and of ourselves. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses. He goes on to say to Jerusalem and, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But the key is not the places. Those are important. He's called us to the world. The key is the power. Because these guys are a bunch of good old boys from you know Galilee. They're like... What do you mean we're gonna? I've never been. I've never been off the off the the sea before. What do you mean I'm gonna go? Uh, I go to Jerusalem every once in a while because I'm a good Jewish boy. But Samaria to the ends of the world. I've never been there before. How how am I gonna accomplish what you've asked me to do, God? How can I live up to these expectations that you put forth? It's through the power of the Spirit. He empowers us to live this way. So in Psalm 37, here's what we see. Here's what we see this power doing in. In uh, the follower of God. We have a power to trust and to do good. Listen to Psalm 37, 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend, or the better translation is feed on, feed on faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord and He will act. Trust in Him. Did you, did you hear that promise? You can, you can take that check to the bank and cash it today. Co- Commit your way to the Lord and He will act. Commit your way to the Lord and He will act. So, so here's the question for us. How do we trust someone that we can't see? If we're being honest. How do we trust someone when, when we feel like sometimes God is yanking us around like a yo-yo? He's taking us through these experiences and, and letting us experience this loss. How do we trust Him? I kind of think it's similar uh, to when, when my car needs to be worked on. Uh, I can take my car, you know, it's spitting out one of those codes and the check engine light's screaming at me when I'm driving. I can take, I can take um, my car to, to like this, you know, the Toyota dealership or whatever and say, hey, can y'all, can y'all tell me what's going on with my car? And they'll say, yeah, you need a new spark plug, that'll be $5,000, right? Um, or, I'm kind of kidding. Um, <laughs> or, or you can take it to a friend and, uh, and they tell you, you know, um, they may tell you the same thing, you know, this is a really expensive spark plug, but you know, I gotta, you know, I gotta put this thing in. But you're gonna be more likely to trust the family friend who's been working on cars for years, right? And what he tells you about your car. What's the difference in those two things? The relationship, right? The relationship is the difference. We are friends of God. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He He has He is the running father of Luke 15. Uh, to come and to be with us. We have relationships. So, so we, have, we have power to trust and to do good, uh, even though all we see is evil all around us. God's will is for us to do good uh, in the face of evil, and it's super counterintuitive. And the only way that it can ever happen is if there's another power source within you uh, causing you uh, to, to walk in obedience to God. Uh, when, I, when I was in college, I had a friend that uh, pretty deeply betrayed me. I won't go into the details, but um, let's just put it this way. I was tempted to nail him to the wall. 
I was tempted to gossip about him. I was tempted uh, to, uh, to, to really just make his life miserable. And I was reading Romans chapter 12, and I think it's like verse 20, 19 through 21, and it says something about like, um, you know, when, whenever you do, do good to those who have done evil to you, it's like you're, you're heaping burning coals on their head. Um, and what you're proving is that Jesus Christ gives power to the powerless. Because you and I are reactionary creatures that only want to, 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 to pay uh, revenge on those that have hurt us. Um, but in Jesus, we have a different type of power to do good. Um, so here's my question to you, and we'll, we'll move on. Are you... Um, he talks about wrath in, in the context of anger too. Are you um, knowingly or unknowingly punishing someone right now that's hurt you? You're punishing them through distance. You're punishing them through gossiping about their name, running their name uh, kind of through the mill. You, uh, you, you are, you're punishing them in some way, shape, or form. Is there someone in your life you're doing that to right now? I want you to, to, to think about that because we have a power that's otherworldly inside of us, friends. And, and we have uh, that power is alive in us. Uh, and, and the only way that you can do good to those who hurt you is by faith. It is an act of faith. And sometimes the training wheels of faith uh, go ahead of the emotions that follow it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Commit your way to the Lord and He will act. You know, we're, we're a non-committal people, right? Um, we, uh, um, commitment seems like it pigeonholes us. We'd rather keep our options open. This is why like, no one in our church ever RSVPs to anything. Um, I might be a little angry right now. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, but commitment is what creates beauty and intimacy. Without commitment, that does not exist because we are protecting ourselves. Commitment creates beauty and intimacy. And it's, it's, think about this. It is God, according to Deuteronomy 7, it is God who first saw the Israelites as lovely and beautiful. And that's what made them lovely and beautiful. There was nothing in and of themselves. They weren't this powerful nation. But it's the fact that God set His love on them that made them beautiful. He committed to them for better or for worse. This, this promise, which is I'll be your God and you'll be my people no matter what. End of story. And He's been pursuing us Ever since, making us beautiful from ashes into beauty. That's what He has been doing. But sometimes we feel like we are constantly performing before God, uh, treating our walk in Him as an endless audition. We are always trying to show ourselves and prove ourselves. But, but friends, I have good news. The audition is over. And the part has been given to the leading actor, Jesus, in your life. Who, who, who's featuring in this film uh, your life. And He's the Savior of it. And there's nothing left to prove other than for you to enjoy the work that He's done. To set your gaze on Him. To find your, your happiness and your deepest joy in Him. We can, we can lean wholly on this grace now. This word for commit uh, in, in the Hebrew uh, in the Bible is translated uh, as the word roll, R-O-L-L, uh, in nearly every other place the word's used. And, and the, the, the imagery is this, is that it's, it's like rolling a stone onto something. Now, when, when you commit to roll a stone, you get a couple guys around you to roll a stone onto something. There's no going back. There's no 
uh, being haphazard about how you roll the stone. You can't split it in half and put it here, have it here, have it here. You're rolling the whole thing on it. The Scriptures are saying, put your money where your mouth is if you want to see Me act. If you want to see Me come through, present yourself and, and recklessly abandon all other options for hope and life. That's what it means to commit your way to the Lord. Roll your weight on Him. So I, uh, I, I purchased a, a, a kitchen table. Uh, this is probably a year and a half ago. And uh, this kitchen table, you know, it matched our kitchen. Uh, you know, it had, it had like the, you know, we have a pretty big family now, so we needed the benches. Uh, and the one we had, the table we had before was too tall. Our kids kept falling out and hurting themselves on the wood floor. So anyway, so we got this smaller table. And uh, I sat on the bench when I bought it. I was like, man, this is great. You know, gave the guy the money, uh, loaded everything up into my truck. I get home and we're having the inaugural dinner on the new table. Uh, you know, I've grilled out something great. Megan has put together some, some great vegetables that, that I eat uh, sometimes. And, and, and we're eating this dinner and uh, Megan is less than enthused at, in her position at the table. She's sitting, you know, the, there's benches on each side and there's chairs on the ends. And uh, I'm like, you know, what's going on? Why, do you not, why are you not enjoying this great dinner on this great table? And she goes, well, these chairs are awful. I'm like, what do you mean? And guys, I kid you not, if, you, if you're in our missional community, you get there last, you get these chairs. Uh, but the chair, the chair is like, you sit on it, and it's like you're, you're on a water slide. I mean, it like dumps you into the floor. So there's like, you have to put this constant presser to stay in the seat. It's just really, it makes you stay attentive, but uh, it really uncomfortable. And the thing that I did in that moment is that I assumed that that chair would do its job. I, I, I put my trust in the fact that that was a chair and it should do the job like any other chair would do, but it simply doesn't. And the people in my missional community can tell you uh, that it doesn't do it well. How often, church, do we give our trust and our commitment to things that are not worthy of it? How often do we do that? It looks good. It, it looks, I mean, it's like Eve. It looks... It looked, the fruit looked pleasing to the eye. So I'm going to give it my, I'm going to throw myself on it because it looks good. The only, the only one who's worthy of your total reckless abandoned commitment is Jesus. Is because he has recklessly abandoned himself for you. And he is with you every day and he empowers you to walk out the things that are pleasing to him. How can we expect God to move when we have not committed to him? Just ask yourself that question today. If there's something pressing in your soul, and your mind, you're waiting on God to move. Have you committed your way to Him? I was talking with someone this week and, uh, and they were saying, you know, look, this verse for me, I just go to it every morning. I have to recommit my way to the Lord every, every morning because I am so prone to be noncommittal toward the Lord. That's honesty. That's vulnerability. That's what we are dealing with. Uh, next, uh, we have a power to delight. Psalm 37.4. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, Psalm 37.4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That word delight literally means this, just kind of this, this happiness. Like, like we're, we're seeking uh, to be pleased in Jesus. Delight yourself in Him, and then He will give you the desires of your heart. So it kind of reads like this. When you delight yourself in the Lord, He shapes what your desire ought to be. 
He shows you what is desirable. But without delighting yourself in the Lord, you will always be guessing on what is worthy of your affection and your attention. Delighting yourself in the Lord. Let yourself be pleased and happy in God. So many times, especially as Westerners, we do not let God love us. We, have, we know so little of God's love because we are so resistant toward grace. This Scripture is telling us that everything that Jesus is, it can be summed up in you know, gracious Savior, however you want to put it forth. Everything that He is for us, we delight in. And He finds us delightable because we are delighted in Him. So what does it look like for you to delight in the Lord today? Where are you, where are you just resisting delighting in Jesus? You're resisting in being a well-pleasing aroma in His sight. You are resisting the fact that you are holy and righteous and set apart. You're resisting the fact that you are lovable. You're resisting the fact that He has given you every good and perfect gift because He's the Father of lights who loves the good, good gifts to His children. Where are you resisting Him? And what would it look like for you to just, to just lay it down before Him today? To just lay it down before Him and learn to delight. Because all of the, the, the twists and turns that our journeys are going to take cannot be held up in any other fashion than delight. Make delight your highest aim. I, I remember when Megan and I were seeking to, um, to plant the church, there were four cities that we just were kind of feeling man, just, just torn between. We had these opportunities and some of them were going to be a little more risky than others. Uh, but we were, I mean, we're playing a church. I mean, what's a little risk? You know, let's go for it. And so I remember us um, getting to this place where I was talking to this guy named John from St. Louis. He's a pastor of a church there. And I said, I said man, I just don't know what God is calling us to. I, I feel like He just hasn't given us clarity. And he goes, you know what I do when I get in those moments? I go to Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And he just simply said, hey man, is there any unrepentant sin in your life right now that you're just letting fester? And I was like, well, there probably is. I'm just not aware of it right now, okay? <laughs> um, but I said, you know, there's nothing that comes to mind. And he goes, where do you want to be? Where do, where do you want to raise a family? How do you want to live? And, and, and we said, you know, Atlanta seems like a good option, but here's the problem. There's no opportunities for us to move to Atlanta. Uh, we've got these opportunities in St. Louis and Seattle and Las Vegas, but there's nothing in Atlanta. And he said, have you asked God for that? Have you committed your way? Have you asked Him for that? Have you asked Him to give you the desires of your heart? And I said, well, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? And so Megan and I then started praying for five things. And there were things like, you know, we bought our house in 2008 in Indiana and we were just upside down in it because anybody who bought a house in 2008 was upside down. And so, you know, didn't have a lot of money. We really were asking God to let us leave Indianapolis without any debt on a house. And so, you know, little things started happening. Like, we were getting ready to put our house on the market the next day. And, uh, and I'm thinking, and we're listing it for $10,000 less than we, than we paid for it. So we're going in the hole. That's what it's looking like. And so I'm just praying, God, come on. I'm delighting myself in you. Come through. I'm committing my way to you. And like literally, it's, it is like 7 o'clock the night before. A, a guy that is working sound for the youth group that I'm leading that night he comes down and we're kind of turning off the lights and locking up. And he goes, hey, you still have that house for sale? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually listing it tomorrow uh, for a lot you know, less than I was hoping to get out of it. He's like, well, you know, what do you owe on it? And we start talking. He goes, what if I just paid what you owed on it? You'd be okay with that? 
He goes, let me talk to my wife first. And I was like, that would be a good idea. Um, and, uh, and anyway, the next day he calls me. He's like, don't go to the realtor's office. I'm going to buy it from you. I'm going to pay exactly what you owe on it. And I'm going to let you live there until you move. And we're like, whoa, God. So whenever we saw God move like that, we're like, what? there's nothing that's impossible for this God. And that was so small and incremental looking back. But then he started, he, he opened up a way for us to have a two-year training program in Atlanta that we, we got to put, we need two years before we plan on our hearts. And we had no idea how that was going to happen. Everybody we were talking to said, yeah, we'll do this like six to nine month training program. We hadn't heard of anybody doing two years. We started praying and God just leads me to this guy named Leon. He leads me to this guy named Bob and they offer us a, a, a call here. And it was just thing after thing, but it all started with delighting in the Lord. And he purifies and aligns your desires. It's what he does. He's pleased to do it time and time again. You have this power to humbly wait. He says this, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Shall inherit the land. Where else have you heard that from? Psalm 37. You've heard that from Jesus. You've heard that from Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? But the meek shall inherit the land. What is a meekness? It is a quiet, still strength that doesn't find its strength in anything other than waiting. You know it takes a lot of strength to wait on the Lord? It takes a lot of strength to wait on the Lord and not go ahead of the Lord. So he says things like this in Psalm 37. Dwell in the land. So at this point, the Israelites are in the promised land. They're thinking, man, it doesn't look so promising now. Okay? I've, we got what we asked for. We got what you promised. Can we go back to Egypt? I mean, they're, they're kind of thinking through, you know, God, what are you doing here? And sometimes when God gives us what we desire, it does, the grass isn't greener, right? And that happens. That happens to us all the time. And he says, stay where you're at. Dwell in the land. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and patiently wait for Him. Verse 11, but the meek will inherit the land. So what he's talking about when he's talking about the land is this promise that Abraham made. This promise that said, hey, you know, you'll, I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll give you descendants as numerous as the, the stars in the sky and the, the, the granules of sand on the seashore. I'll give this all to you. But it's always been a metaphor for what it's like to dwell with God. The land, a home. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 talks about this home that we all desire. Not like this physical house in Lawrenceville. But this home, this place to belong, which is with God. So he says, wait on the Lord and, and stay where you're at. You know, there's a verse, Jeremiah 29.11. I bet 75% of you could quote this verse to me right now. It's a great promise, but many people misinterpret the context of the promise that's given. It says this, Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope in a future. And the way that we are tempted to use this verse is almost like a, a prosperity gospel, health and wealth kind of way. Like, hey, I know I got one coming to me. I'm so looking forward to it. That's kind of the way that we treat Jeremiah 29 11. Or we tritely help people deal with, we, we think we're helping people deal with suffering by saying, uh, you know, hey, God's got a plan in the future. Well, this plan doesn't look very good to me right now, okay? That's what, I mean, that's honestly how we, how we feel a lot of times. But the context of Jeremiah 29 11 is this, is right before this, he talks about what it's like to live in exile. He says, look, listen, uh, seek the peace and prosperity of the city of which I've carried you into exile. So he says, hey, stay. Stay where you're at. Dwell in the land. Be where you are because there's, no, there's nowhere else to be in the presence of the Lord than right where you are right now. Be where you're at is what he says. 
Learn how to live and thrive in exile. But after this verse, he goes on to tell them that, yeah, I do have a plan. And the plan is this. You're going to be in exile for 70 more years. You never hear that part of Jeremiah 20 11, do you? You're going to be in exile for... So, let me get this straight. You're going to give us land, but half of us aren't ever going to see it. Only our kids are. Yeah, that's right. Dwell in the land. Be where you are. Where are you begging God to show Himself to you today? How are you waiting on the Lord? The only place to be, church, is right where you're at. It is better to wait on Him than go ahead of Him time and time again. And so, what does this take of us? It takes a perseverance and a commitment to Jesus that He knows us better than ourselves and that His plans are far uh, far more mighty and, and, and all-encompassing than we could ever imagine. That we... we um, we see in part, as the Scriptures say. We, we see in part and we know in part. Uh, but, as, but as the Scriptures uh, say in Isaiah, that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now that is not a cop-out for us to stop praying and waiting on the Lord. What it is, is a security blanket for us that we can put all of our trust and all of our faith in Him because He truly does know what's best for us. I want to leave you with this poem. Um, as we think about God giving Himself to us instead of just a plan. We'll close with this. It's called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes He weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget He sees the upper and I, I see the underside. Not till the looms are silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern He has planned. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to You today and, and we ask... We ask for You to give us Yourself. And You have done that. So we ask for faith to believe that who You are is enough for us. And that the person of Jesus is better than any plan He could ever give us. We admit that we doubt this frequently. And God, we pray. We pray for, for faith. We pray that, uh, that a commitment to You and to Your way um, would be the song of our heart. But I pray that New City Church would be a church that learns to delight well. That learns uh, to cast all of our cares on You because You care. As the Psalms say, cast your care on the Lord and He will sustain you. So God, we just, we just confess today that we need to be sustained. That we, we, need, we need You. So Father, for those in here this morning that, that look at how their, their life has kind of unpacked itself and they doubt You, I pray that You would strengthen them. You would help them to soar on the wings of an eagle, God, because You carry us through it.
Jesus, I pray for those that um, they can't see the way right now. That Your delivering and sustaining grace would be so palpable and present in their hearts. And we thank You for Jesus that gives us power for everything we need in life and the godliness that leads to His glory. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.